miraculous things are afoot. Uh, we are going to uh, cover two chapters of Joshua tonight, a very short period of time. We need to get rid of Joshua uh, as soon as possible without doing any injustice to it because I'm going to need some time prior to uh, January 1 when Revelation starts to... Uh, uh, to give you some input and uh, some things that will help you understand the text of the book of Revelation. So tonight I want to look at Joshua 7 and 8 as we talk about the broken agreement. The broken agreement. You know, we have the promise of God uh, many places in His Word, but it's verbalized in Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, that our ways are not His ways and our thoughts are not His thought. And and the difference between the way we think and the way God thinks is, the, uh, is comparable to the distance between the farthest extent of the sky and the surface of the earth. So it should not surprise us when things like this happen. There are a number of things that uh, very casually we pass off, saying that's Old Testament. Well, you've said a mouthful when you say that's Old Testament for the Lord Jesus Christ acknowledged its absolute authority over him and his teachings were drawn from it and it is as authoritative today as it ever was. Well, I thought all that ceased, someone may say, when Jesus died. No, animal sacrifice ceased when Jesus died. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass before one cross of a T or dot of the I passes from the Old Testament. And so we look at a principle, may find something here that will startle us and that may answer some questions for us. First of all, just in the, the first verse of chapter 7, here is what I have called sin in the camp. Now, they have had victory at Jericho. Jericho has been taken according to God's promise, and there has been victory. And this seems just like an aside, like a very insignificant thing. After all, what is, what is the big deal about one person out of several million? doing something wrong. What's the big deal? Nobody's perfect. Just very simply says, but Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. There was sin in the camp. Now notice its devastating effects. Verses 2. Two to five. Here are the consequences of sin. Jericho was such a tremendous victory that Joshua just sent two or three thousand men to the little village of Ai, which was a very, very small and unimpressive place. For surely if the armies of Israel could take Jericho without conflict, Ai would be no problem at all. But what happened was... Those crack troops, the pick of the army, went to Ai and the men of Ai and their little companion village, Bethel, kicked their teeth in and soundly defeated them. Here are the consequences of sin. And we could spend a great deal of time here and we won't. But suffice it to say that the judgment of God fell on the nation because of the disobedience of one man. The consequences of sin, disastrous. Notice in verses 6 to 9, frustration over sin. Frustration over the sin of the people. Now Joshua is dumbfounded. 
He is flabbergasted. He cannot believe what he hears when the remnants of those troops stagger back into camp, bloody and frightened and defeated, and they tell him what has happened. If you'll look at verses 6 to 9, essentially this is what happened. Joshua pitched a fit. He tore his clothes. He went in to the place of meeting. He laid down on his face and he kicked and squalled like a child. And he did it all day long until evening. And he shook his fist at heaven and said, What do you think you're doing? Now isn't it like even the best of men to try to tag their own sins on somebody else? Joshua, you see, did not yet understand that judgment had come not because God had flaked out or or gone crazy, but because of sin... In the camp, judgment came. Judgment came. Here's his frustration. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns her backs, turns her back on her enemies? Oh, Lord, what will it do to your name? Frustration. And just make a mental note that frustration is usually related to sin. In fact, frustration is always related to sin. And then notice in verses 10 to 26, here is an exhaustive explanation of the solution to sin. What was that solution? Well, it was quite extreme by any measure that we would have, but then again, God's always been a little more serious about sin than people have. Notice what God says to Joshua. I like verses 10 and 11. Now the scene is that God's been standing by watching Joshua throw a fit all day long. And when Joshua runs down, God essentially says to him, Are you through? Yeah. He said, Well, then get up and let's take care of the problem. What was the problem? There's a lot of truth in verse 11. Look what he said. Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. What was the sin? Without going back again to consider the disastrous nature of sin in the camp, the sin of Achan, well, they were a defeated enemy. They were involved in a battle. So I can't really say that you would classify it very simply as stealing. It wasn't that, but there was greed and there was covetousness and there was rebellion against God involved in what Achan did. All of that sin, and there was probably a lot more involved in it. But he said they have sinned, but look further... They have transgressed the covenant. That's where I got the title for these two chapters, The Broken Agreement. You know what a covenant is? It's an agreement between two parties, one of whom is strong and one of whom is weak. And you know what the covenant was? It was very simple. When God made a covenant with Moses and led the people out of Israel, when God renewed his covenant with Joshua in the wilderness and brought them into the land of Canaan, the covenant was very simple. The covenant was God was in charge and they'd do what God said. 
Now you recall before the battle of Jericho, the captain of the Lord's host told Joshua what to do and how to fight the battle. But after the great victory at Jericho, Joshua forgot who was responsible for the victory. And he said to the Lord, now he's like us. There are a lot of things we say to God that we'd never admit that we say, but we do it by the way that we live. He said to the Lord, Lord, now Joshua was, Jericho rather, was a very important place, but AI is nothing. Now don't you worry yourself about this. We're smart enough to handle it. You see, folks, there was sin in the camp, but judgment came also because Joshua and Israel forgot the agreement which was that God was in charge, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. Israel has sinned and they have transgressed my covenant. What's the solution to sin? Well... You punish sin, and that's a little different. You know, God takes care of all of that kind of thing in this fashion now. But sin has to be dealt with. It has to be exposed. It has to be repented of. It has to be eradicated from among God's people. And then you remember who the boss is. That's the solution to sin. Well, to mercifully shorten the gory details of this situation, the sinner was dealt with and Joshua decided to let God be in charge. Now in verse 8, chapter 8 rather, the fifth thing, there was sin in the camp, verse 1, consequences of sin, verses 2 to 5, frustration over sin or because of sin, verses 6 to 9, the solution to sin, verses 10 to 26, verses 1 to 29 of chapter 8, I want to talk about just briefly under this topic, the restoration of favor. Now after the sin had been dealt with and after Joshua himself had decided to let God be in charge, we come back... And the Lord again speaks to Joshua and he says, Josh, let me tell you how we're going to fight the battle of Aiak. And you know, I'm not sure, but I would imagine that Joshua thought to himself, I don't know if I can stand walking around in the sun for another week. You know, that may have had something to do with why they didn't ask God what to do about Ai. Notice this. Victory came at Jericho when they decided to let God be in charge and victory went out the door just as soon as they forgot who was in charge. Isn't that something? You see, they forgot that that victory at Jericho, great and magnificent as it was, was totally the result of God's work. And oh, whatever reaction Joshua had, I must suspect that he liked this plan of battle better than he liked the other one. You ever hear of the ambush? Probably thought that John Wayne or somebody like that invented the ambush, but it wasn't really. God invented the ambush. He is the greatest strategic military thinker who ever lived. He said, Josh, here's what we're going to do. Up there down on, on either side of that road by Ai and Bethel, there's, there's, there's woods down on either side of the valley. And I want you to take a bunch of your guys at night and hide them in the woods. 
And in the morning, I want you to take a few of your guys like you did before. Go up like you want to fight again. They'll remember how they kicked your teeth in the first time. They'll come out of the city. And when they get away from the cities of Ai and Bethel, your guys surround them and ambush them, and you burn the cities down because they're unprotected. Now, you know, that's pretty smart. But there's an interesting side note here, and I'm going to do something real mean. I'm going to make you find it. It says in chapter 8, that Joshua did everything that the Lord said, but then real late at night before the battle, just in case God hadn't told him to take enough troops, Joshua added another 5,000 to the troops in the woods. There's his humanity peeking through, just that inordinate, unholy human desire to help God out. And sure enough, they were restored to favor for the next day. The people of Ai and Bethel came out of their villages. They fought Israel. The troops from the woods uh, collapsed on them and annihilated them and burned their cities down. And the victory was won because they remembered who was in charge. And then notice in the last few verses of chapter 8, verses 30 to 35, I have called this... Remembering the Lord. Now there are some things that that recur over and over again in the book of Joshua. And this matter of a constant remembering of the Lord and who He was and what He'd done is a part of it. Joshua had forgotten once and it was disastrous and he didn't want it to happen again. Now I want you to notice what he did. Joshua built an altar unto the Lord. Joshua put up the same way that he did in the midst of the waters of Jordan, the same way that he did at Gilgal. Joshua erected a physical remembrance to God and to who he was and to what he had done. Verse 31 says, As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has lifted up any iron, and they offered their own burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. A concrete remembrance of and obedience to the word of the Lord. Now notice what he did in verse 32. Can you imagine... How many pencils the guy must have used? It says in verse 32, He wrote there upon the stones a copy of the law of Moses. Now when he says the law of Moses, he means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They must either wrote small or had a lot of rocks involved in that altar. I'm not really sure which. But I want you to notice that the man of God who was attuned to the will of God felt that the word of God was important enough that he wanted not one bit of it forgotten by the people. And all Israel and their elders, their officers, their judges stood on this side 
the ark and on that side before the priests, the Levites, who bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well as the strangers, and as he that was born among them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim, half of them over against Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law. The blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. Notice, and this relates back to the first part of chapter 7. He read everything that God had said up until that point. The blessings and the cursings. Folks, I want to tell you something. When we get so broad-minded and so lily-livered and so unconcerned with what God's Word says that we say, now let's not worry. Everybody has a right to think and do and believe what they want to believe. It's just as bad as if you deny that Jesus Christ ever lived. I'll tell you what our rights are as far as our opinions and our beliefs. Our rights are summed up by the Apostle Paul when he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is the sum, substance, center, and circumference of our rights. I still shudder when I recall the words of one who said, Paul, who said Pastor, everybody I know wants to serve the Lord, but we have different ideas about what that means. And I thought, oh my, how can one who claims to be a Christian exalt the opinions of man above the word of God? How tragic. And it is no less a denial of Jesus than it is atheism when we turn our backs and ignore sin and rebellion against God, which is the very thing that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. We're real big on the blessings, but we don't really want to remember and recall and live with the fact that the blessings bring responsibilities and that sin brings judgment. Then verse 35, just an amplification. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua did not read before the congregation of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant or that were living among them. What then would someone who tends to overreact say? Are you uh, advocating some kind of Jewish legalism? No, I'm no more legalistic than Jesus Christ was. Jesus Christ who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now you recall from the first chapter of John the discussion that law has not been done away with, but law has been shifted in God's economy from a cause to an effect. We do not live according to the will of God, according to the word of God, in order to be saved, but because we have been saved. And if you find someone who is a Christian libertine, now that doesn't mean they have to be immoral, but that means they claim to be a Christian and yet they claim the right to make a number of decisions for themselves 
contrary to God's word, you found somebody very likely that's not saved. Because you cannot really be a Christian and be unconcerned about being obedient to God. You see, you drink water because you like it. But a fish lives in water because he has to. And there's a big difference. The most frustrated, unhappy, and hardest to reach people on the face of the earth are people who miss Jesus and have become bitter and negative and critical. They're the ones that hadn't been in church for 20 years. Bitter and critical and negative at God trying to live the Christian life without ever being saved. You see, because when they were trying to live according to God's word without being saved, they were like a a fish flopping around in the sand. They were not natural. They were out of their element. So you see, a fish has to have the water. And a sinner has to live consistent with his sin nature, whether that sin nature comes dressed in the trappings of morality or immorality. It's still sin. God's word is valid, every word of it. And I have one thing in the world I don't have any courage to do, and that's turn my back on what God's word says. I'd rather buck anybody I know but God. I don't have that much courage. And folks, when we say, now, I know what's right, but we've we got to be careful we don't offend somebody, we're cooperating with the devil. If God said it, that's it, period. That's all that matters. And if you doubt the truth of that, look at the ministry of Jesus Christ who refused to let anybody follow him until they knew what they were doing. The richest man in town tried to join Jesus' band of disciples, but Jesus knew where his heart was, and he said, you can follow me if you go get rid of all your money. If I did that, the gentlemen of our illustrious deacon body would convene a council and put me somewhere in a rubber room until my head was examined. Jesus did it. We've got to get a handle on the fact in the church that love and compromise are not synonymous terms. Parents, if you raised your kids the way sometimes you think we ought to do so that nobody gets offended, they'd be damned to hell. God's word is valid. It's authoritative only for those who are saved. It is an effect of our relationship with God. And it is not a cause of our relationship to God. Just another word. In verses 20 and 21 of chapter 7, here are the four steps of sin. I just want to throw this in. I won't even comment on them. These two verses deal with the sin of Achan. Listen to what Achan said about his sin. And this is normally the way the devil entices us into sin. Normally the way. Achan said, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. Verse 21, when I saw, that's the first step in sin, is enticement through the senses, a a physical, a, a, a fleshly desire. When I saw the beautiful thing, I coveted it, that unholy desire to possess something that doesn't belong to us. Then I took it and I hid it. Steps to sin. I saw, I coveted, I took, 
and I hid. And the thing which was not his own, which he took in rebellion against God, destroyed him. All right, any questions on uh, verse chapter 7 and 8 of Joshua? Comment, anything relative to Joshua in general or anything very quickly? The broken agreement and the restoration to favor, chapter 7 and 8. When I think of Joshua, I think of the quotation from George Bernard Shaw that Robert Kennedy had a way of quoting in his campaigns before his death. By the way, I'm neither a liberal nor a true Democrat, not that it matters. Kennedy quoted George Bernard Shaw often, and his brother Edward quoted it at the funeral of Robert Kennedy. It was a very brief and simple statement. Shaw said, and Kennedy quoted, Some men see things as they are and say, Why? I dream of things that never were and say, Why not? May we pray. Father in heaven, plant within our bodies an openness to the truth wherever it comes from, a willingness to obey you and finally and forever lay down human reason and just do what you say, a hatred of nothing but sin, a fear of and a love for nothing but you. And may we be a people wholly committed to you, a people that you can use in a wondrous, an unimaginable way in our world. Amen. We will consider ourselves convinced.